0: I think January is the kind of year, sorry, the kind of month where you want to go abroad. <laughs> You're like, I've got no holiday. This is a terrible idea. But I think the only thing that I really like about January is that it's a bit of a new start with things that you often kind of reflect on what's been the year before and go, Lord, what is it that you want to put in? Who, uh, anybody with their New Year's resolutions? Anybody do any? Yeah. Who's still doing them? Oh that's pretty good so three of you decided to do new year's resolutions and three of you are still doing them that is a high hit rate the rest of you have just been like I've tried it I'm not going to do that again so uh no that's good but I'm excited to be starting a new series this morning and it's called the truth jesus in a post truth culture probably the fanciest title we've ever done and uh I'm not sure what it means but no no I do but we're going to be based in John's gospel as we as we look at this Question really, um, or statement, I guess. Some of you will nec- recognize the name Emile Rattleband. No, great. Um, recently, he went to the courts to try and change his age from 69 to 49. <laughs> and I, it was actually his birth certificate. His reason for wanting to do so could be seen as a little creepy. He wanted to change his age on Tinder in order to get more dates. And you're like, ooh. Um, his rationale was age is just a number. He feels 49, so why can't he say that he's 49? And then he said, well, he'd gone and met with his doctor, and his doctor had said that he'd got a body of a, of a younger man. I've looked at some of the pictures I'm not convinced he looks 49. You know when you're like, and I'm not meaning to be harsh to Emil because he's got a great name. But um, but an interesting moment. A post-truth world. In November 2016, the Oxford Dictionaries announced their 2016 word of the year, post-truth. It's an adjective. Let me give you a little definition of what it means. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The accompanying press release further explained, it goes on to say, rather than simply referring to the time after a specified situation or event, as in post-war or post-match, the prefix in post-truth has a meaning much more like belonging to a time in which the specified concept has become unimportant or irrelevant. So a post-truth world, then, is not one in which the truth has ceased to exist. It is one in which it no longer matters. That's fascinating when you you just stop and think about it. The political headlines of 2016 catalyzed the selection of this idea of post-truth, including the Brexit vote here, the presidential election in the U.S., so commentators on both campaigns used the term with new frequency and they, as they attempted to explain events that surprised them. Fake news. I'm not going to try and do a Donald Trump impression at this moment. Fake news. But in the after, I actually did, that's a lie. In the after, it was just a bad, bad. Effort. In the aftermath of the presidential election in the US came the outcry over fake news, especially over social media platforms. And in hindsight, it seems almost inevitable because when content producers are incentivized to prioritize clicks over quality and consumers care more about entertainment than edification, then the more outrageous the story, the better. If you're trying to get people to click on your thing, then you're going to write something to try and hook them, aren't you? To get them in, whether it's true or whether it's not true. So money is driving social media, which we know underlyingly. It makes sense. Truth suffers. I don't know that you noticed this week there was something in the news about Facebook employing some people who would be verifying whether various articles were true, not true, or maybe true. Interesting, isn't it, that they've actually started to employ around this because this has become such a problem in social media. So what do we know whether something's true or not true? And does it even matter whether it's true? I don't know about you, but I can feel that something is changing in the last five or ten years. There's something changing. Um, And it's quite difficult to pinpoint exactly what it is. When you stop and think, it's like, is it this? And it's like, well, it's not quite that. And people are thinking differently. They're acting differently. What is it? And I think if you were to break it down a step, if you could imagine tectonic plates, the tectonic plates being people's worldview, worldviews are shifting. That's what's beginning to happen in the last five or ten years. In order to speak into the culture as Christians, we have to try and understand it. There is various kind of trains on thought on this some would say christians just need to take themselves out of the world you know become their own community and and not really bother about what other people think we don't agree in that at all we think that it's massively important that we try and understand what what are these tectonic shifts what is actually happening within our culture to try and understand what people are thinking and feeling and imbibing and taking into their soul what why are they thinking what they're thinking what are they watching and being formed and shaped by what what is their worldview? What are some of the assumptions underlying what they actually think? the grid through which they look at life? I'm indebted to a guy called Mark Sayers for some of his thinking on this. He's a pastor in Australia and a brilliant brilliant cultural commentator and as many of us know, the rise of technology has fundamentally shifted our world we we are Um, And we know that. That's not new to you. The way that we work, the way that we socialize, the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we interact. And screens are subconsciously feeding our brains all of the time. Every time we look at a screen, we are being marketed to, shaped, formed and molded. We need to not be naive about that. Our thinking and our minds are directed to certain patterns of thought. Technology has and is changing everything. Now, what I don't want you to hear as I talk about this is I'm anti-technology. I'm not. I think there are some wonderful, wonderful things about um, the Internet, you know, the information that we can find, all of these things. I just think we have to be careful about being naive about some of the things that are going on. People's worldviews are changing. It used to be... We lived in a predominantly Christian worldview in the UK with some other faiths, uh, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist. Then there were a number of atheists and agnostics, a predominantly Christian thinking informed nation. That would have been where we were. Over the last decade, we have seen the rise and fall of new atheism. I don't. If you think back ten years ago, there was a book, um, *The God Delusion* by Dawkins. Christopher Hitchens put out some stuff as well. So what happened was there was this, and to be honest, these are these were theological arguments. These weren't new arguments at all. In fact, they weren't actually that succinctly put by Dawkins himself. It had been in the, the- theological sphere for a long while. Dawkins brought them to the forefront. The problem was, at that moment, everybody, you know, and suddenly people were engaging with these things. If you take a lot of these arguments to their logical conclusion, they leave you to somewhere quite scary. And what happened was everybody realised Dawkins was a bit angry. And so people suddenly kind of wanted to then distance themselves from some of the thinking and the logical outworking of where that takes you to. So kind of new atheism did this, and then it's kind of on the, you know, it's like, it's still there, but on the way down. So, um, we are living in what myself and others would call a post-Christian nation. And it's very different to a pre-Christian nation. To give you a little um, quote, Mark says says this, Within the church in the West, it is almost universally acknowledged that we live in a post-Christian culture. However, it is crucial that we understand what we mean by post-Christian. Post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of the costs, commitments and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and the shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual well. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. That's quite a quote, isn't it? <laughs> to get to the heart of our post-Christian context, we must understand: well, how do we get here and how did the ground shift? Sometime in the night, a revolution occurred. Something happened. And we can feel that it's changed. It's just difficult to pinpoint. Now, this new power swirls around a small yet widely held set of beliefs. And so I just wanted to go through. Now, what I'm not saying in this moment is I am definitively right. But I have found these thoughts incredibly helpful. And I think that you might find them helpful as well to go, what are the things that our culture is taking in and believing? And so there's seven of them, and I'm just going to go through them. This is the first one. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self definition, and self expression. That's quite an easy one. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self definition, and self expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, The world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will monitor this progression towards utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Don't think you can see the irony. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class equality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression and personal autonomy. Number five, humans are inherently good. Well, that's a challenge. That might be something that we would struggle with. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And then finally... Number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. These beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. They are not enforced, rather they are imbibed. That's what I'm talking about, the things that we take in day after day. We do not receive them as intellectual propaganda to be obeyed. Instead, they are communicated to us at an almost subconscious level through everything that we watch Films, series, advertising, you will be bombarded with this every day of your life. This new cultural mood becomes all the more powerful as the good is reduced to mere individual happiness. Whatever is good for you. I don't know how many times I've heard that phrase in conversations that I've been in around as I'm, you know, if that makes you happy, even if it's the most stupid thing to do in the world. If that makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good, that, that's where we've come to. And it seems to justify any behavior, underlyingly. If that's what makes you feel happy, we can no longer see beyond ourselves to learn from history or to be concerned about the future. The result is an amnesia about everything except the immediate, the instant, the now and the me. Because that is the grid. Everything is now about self. The quest for self. The future is not left to God, but rather a kind of implicit, fuzzy faith that things will simply get better, that somehow society will get better, that my life will get better. Now I've just tried to give you a little snapshot of what I think some what's going on. Into this context, sorry, it's a slightly longer introduction than normal. You're like, get to the Bible ranking. (laughs) I thought I was in a church. (laughs) You are in a church. Into this context, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ thrive and grow and expand? It's a good question that we have to grapple with. There are no easy answers about this. We do not need to be scared is the first thing. Sometimes when things change as the church, as Christians, we can feel very afraid. And that can be our response. We don't need to be afraid. Over the last 2,000 years, culture has changed many, many times worldviews have changed again and again this is not something new thought is changing in a world what does the truth mean within this context in a world that says you can believe what you want as long as it's in line with our seven values in a society that is tolerantly intolerant or intolerantly tolerant I'm not sure which one it is there's something about tolerance in there is what I'm saying There are some challenges. There are also some incredible opportunities. I I believe John's gospel is an incredible starting point. We have to start with what God has revealed. The Christian faith is a revealed faith. So what do I mean by that? I I mean that revealed means that God has made himself known to humanity. God has broken in. God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. You have this moment where Moses just this bushes a light, starts to speak. And, and who is it? You know, the God of your forefathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. That is, and who shall I, if I have to go back to this people, then who shall I say you are, I am, Yahweh, you know. I was, I am, and I will be, you know, this is what that, that name means. God revealed himself to Moses. You come into the New Testament, God revealed himself through Jesus Christ. God broke in through the incarnation, through a subversive act of God becoming a baby, who became a man, who died, who rose again. The first verse in John's Gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The text is telling us God has spoken rationally. The Greek word for, sorry, the Greek for word here is logos. I studied Greek 20 years ago and I studied John's Gospel. I cannot remember anything apart from the first half of the verse. In Arche, Hologos was worth the year's worth of Greek study. Uh, So the, the word Logos is the word from which we get the word logic. So what does it mean to say Jesus is the logic of God? I think here's what it is. God has not given us a watertight argument to prove Christianity. It's true. He's given us a watertight person, not an abstract argument. So a watertight person is the compelling proof that the God of the Bible and Christianity are true. This is not anti-rational when I say, to say Jesus Christ is a watertight person and that's the compelling proof we're given rather than a watertight argument is say, you have to look at Jesus. That's why The truth, Jesus in a post truth culture. You have to look at the accounts of Jesus' life. You have to look at his claims. You've got to look at his teaching. You have to compare that to the way that he behaved. I've been back into John's Gospel as I've been, you know, grappling with some of this stuff. As you read the words of Jesus in and of themselves, he is an absolute genius. You know, as you read the Gospels, the parables, to make it up, I, I sit there and I, it's, it's exceptional, just the words of Jesus. We've got to look at his resurrection. And I think that we'll find that his life towers above others, that he's inexplicable. If we want to know God, if we want to know God's real, if we want to know God personally, it can only happen through the word because that's how people work. You know them through their word. Jesus is the word, the ultimate, clearest revelation of who God is. The whole point of Christmas He's the word made flesh, the word made soft, the divine made human. More than that, the word made vulnerable, the word made killable. Jesus came into our world and proclaimed that he was the truth, the truth was found in him, that everything made sense in him, that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. John 1.14, the truth of God, the logic of God. And throughout this The Gospel of John, we see this word truth again and again and again. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 424, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Then 832, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. 14.6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. 16.13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. 17.17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is found in a person. So we have this principle that truth is found in a person and can be known because it's been revealed. Truth is not found inside of us, but found inside of him, that he came to show us the truth, to reveal the truth. In essence, this means that our values are not the same as our cultures. Deep down, we know this, but what's becoming more obviously true increasingly true is that we are diverging that the values of society are not christian but cross christian we cannot just become more relevant if we try and as the church just become more and more relevant what will happen we will become utterly irrelevant why because this group will look exactly the same as our culture So why would anybody go to church? Why would anybody sit around the teachings of Jesus? Why would we bother? Why would we not just go to David Lloyd instead? Do you know, let's just join a social club. It does a much better job. You pay your money, you go to the social club. The church has to become more distinctive around Jesus. Otherwise we become irrelevant. We look Exactly like the culture we live in, which is becoming more and more and more self-centered. It's all about me. If you want a little phrase, it's about me. We need to develop something called gospel resilience. Gospel resilience. What's the starting point of gospel resilience? Jesus is the king. Starting point. The gospel proclaims that Jesus is king. The great problem is that we as good 21st century citizens of democracy do not like kings or queens. We like the royals who turn up and cut ribbons at hospital openings and grand weddings. We tolerate tolerate them now that they have no control over us. We prefer democracy, yet God is still king. His coronation upon the cross shows us that he is the sacrificial servant king of the upside-down kingdom. What do I mean by that? The upside-down kingdom is that whenever we think about kingship or queenship, we think about somebody ruling over us. We think about it as power. The upside-down kingdom means that it was inverted, that God came as a baby, that he came as a child, that he came in weakness, that he came to die. That's the upside-down kingdom. The weak shall inherit the earth. It's all upside-down. And T. Wright notes in his book how God became king that even among good Christians, our anti-royal, democratic heritage makes the idea of living under a king hard to stomach. It's like whew. often, as believers, we wish for the kingdom but do not want to acknowledge the authority of the king. It's like oh, yeah, I talked to earlier in one of the valleys. We like, you know, we like the shalom. We love this idea of kingdom justice. We just don't want to come under the kingship. We don't want to come under the rule of the king. At the heart of the kingships is the concept of authority authority is the surrendering of autonomy absolute freedom of free choice to somebody else so what are we saying when we come to jesus what is it that's happening we are declaring i am no longer in charge that goes against everything that society will say i live for somebody else is utterly ag- against at odds with our culture I care what he has to say about everything, not what culture has to say. Can you see how these two things are diverging? Gospel resilience means that our worldview is shaped by the scriptures and by the person of Jesus and not our culture. God has loads to say about who we are. Our identity the authority that we carry in his name, the way that we're to live in this world, what wisdom looks like, what marriage looks like, what community looks like, how we should speak to one another, how we're to forgive that this world isn't the end, that we're created for intimacy with him, that we're in need of rescue from our sin and our mess, that we are loved beyond measure, that he's desperate for us to come home, that the world is utterly lost without him. This is our story. This is our story. This is not our story. We need to never forget. John 17, which I'm coming back to, I'll preach on it in two weeks' time here, says this I've given them, 17 verses 14 to 18, I'm giving them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. The message version says it like this. I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways. Just as I didn't join the world's ways, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. That is a key thing for us. We are not defined by the world. We are defined by the person of Jesus, by the kingship of God. We need to be resilient. As a people, we're centered around the person of Jesus and the truth found in him. That's why we come here week in, week out. Why is it that we say it's so important for you to be in a small group? Why would we keep hitting that? Because we need each other. It's not enough to come and have an hour, an hour and a quarter, whatever we have together. This is good. I'm not saying that this isn't good. But if this is it, if we do it an hour and a quarter together with other Christians, and that constitutes, how are we? it how are we going to be resilient because we need one another the one another's in the scripture stand firm then that's why we're disciples of jesus that's why we're his apprentices that's why we're wanting to look more like him we live in a consumer society which would say this we want to consume without taking responsibility we want to consume without building community we want to try without having to buy in. So all of it is this idea that I can look in on something, I can critique it, but I'm not going to be central to making it happen. That is absolutely at odds with gospel resilience. Gospel resilience looks nothing like the consuming society that we live in. We're serving the king, and we are loving his bride, the church. His beautiful bride. In all of its brokenness, (laughs) we will not always get it together. We will not always get it right. You will rub up against people that are going to annoy you. But it's his idea. It's his bride. And it's beautiful. We need deep roots. That's what gospel resilience means, deep roots. I want you to imagine just a tree. In Psalm 1, it talks about a tree planted by streams of living water that flourishes in season and out. So I want you to imagine a tree for a moment. What do your roots look like? Because I'm talking about gospel resilience. Gospel resilience is not what's on the surface, it's what's under the surface that will hold that tree. The culture that we're living in is windy. There will be storms that come through. A tree stands because of its roots. What's even more amazing, if if you think about trees, they come together in forests. If you want a tree to be really strong, it's planted by other trees. A tree by itself is vulnerable. So you imagine the picture of a forest of trees with deep roots. That's that's what the Lord's calling us to be. Jesus is king. Jesus is truth. Jesus is hope. Jesus is life. The tectonic plates are changing. I'm excited about this. I don't want to live a Christian nominalistic thing of lip service to the Lord and not living under the kingship. We're called to live under him, this body of people. These are our brothers and sisters. We get to do this life together in journeying towards him because it's not the end. One day we get to go and be with him. That's exciting. But for now, we've got each other. And it's a beautiful thing. In finishing, I'd love you to stand. And I want to do something a little bit different. I would love us to read the Creed together. There are a number of different creeds made in the third century by the church who are like, what is it that we believe? There's the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, and it was kind of the church fathers getting together and trying to say, what is it that we stand on? What is it that we're agreed on? And sometimes we have to stand. And almost declare this is who we are and this is the story that we live under. This is what we're doing when we're reading the creed. We're saying this is our story. This is who we are. And it's like a declaration. So it's going to come up on the screen. And I'd love us to read it together in finishing. So I'll, I'll lead and then just join in with it. If you, if you can't say this, that's absolutely fine. But that, if you can, it's amazing. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead And the life of the world to come. Amen. There's our story. So, why don't you just open yourself up to the Holy Spirit just in finishing? Do you know what? I'm going to do something a little bit different. We did a bit of ministry earlier. I'm going to commission you instead this morning. So, just open yourself up and I'm just going to pray over us as a group. As we stand here, we proclaim that you are the king. And Lord, we put you back in your rightful place. Lord, we just say sorry if anything's got in the way. We just repent of that. And Lord, we're excited about being your sons and daughters. The children of God. So, Lord, we pray for the empowering of the Holy Spirit right now. Would you come and fill every single individual as we step into this new year, that you would fill them with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So receive the Holy Spirit right now. It's his comforter. It's his advocate. Part of us. And would you aliven it? Would we become less and you become more? Would we be the radiance of Jesus Christ in this city? Would we look more like you? And would you give us the boldness that goes with the spirit? For the Lord did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love and of self-control. So I commission you in the name of Jesus to go and work for him this year. In his precious name. Amen.